Well done. Because apparently the flu is knocking people out left and right. Um, we're in Second Thessalonians tonight, and it is uh, not a very long book at all. It's one of the shortest we've seen thus far. So uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll dive in. Let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for our time tonight to get to stop in the middle of the week and consider your word. I pray that as we consider this problem that the Thessalonians had, and as we look at the, uh, the solution that was provided and the cause of the problem, I pray that we would glean insight, understanding, and discernment that allows us to be able to live more wisely and to stay more in step with your will. We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> what was the main point of Galatians? Overview studies, one word, keeping it going. Main point of Galatians was what? Faith. Ephesians was what? Grace. Philippians was what? Humility. Colossians was what? New life. And First Thessalonians was what? The second coming. What did we learn from last week's study about the church in Thessalonica? Because it, it helps us because we're in 2 Thessalonians, so a lot of the background we're needing for tonight we gained last week. What did we learn last week about the church in Thessalonica? Yes, Paul needed to go back to lay a firm foundation. Why did he have to go back? He was run out of town, and he was run out of town sort of mid-plant. So he's planting this church. He's shared gospel with them, but he's not done planting, and he gets run out of town. And what were they saying about him after he got run out of town in the middle of the night? Yeah, he was accused of leaving because things got hard. He was accused of being a money-grubbing, self-serving, or self-promoter. And so, you know, he pours out his heart, he brings gospel, he shares, he plants this church, and then he's spoken ill of just as soon as he's run out of town in the middle of the night. Uh, who is Thessalonica named after? Anyone remember? Sister. Sister of Alexander the Great. Yeah, you second-guessed yourself, yeah. The... Uh, the, the, the sister of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great was doing a lot of conquering, and when they came to Macedonia, they decided that Macedonia needed a new sort of flagship, and the flagship was Thessalonica, named after Alexander the Great's sister. So our outline for tonight is going to be looking at the problem that was going on in Thessalonica at this point, for this, the reason for the second letter, the problem, the cause of the problem, and the solution for the problem. And then we're going to consider how the Thessalonians fell into such a problem and what we can learn from their mistakes. So we're going to look at the problem, the cause of the problem, the solution for the problem, how they fell into it, and what we can learn from their mistakes. So the first is the problem. Crazy enough, simply put, the problem in the Thessalonian church is idleness. I kid you not, Ben and I did not coordinate and orchestrate these things. They happen all the time. Sunday's message was, wasn't... Let's just talk about Sunday's message for a minute. Is anybody upset about Sunday's message? Did it feel like a switcheroo? Did it feel like you were coming to get some encouragement to take a nap and you were told to get to work? I was looking forward to my nap too. I told him, I said, I told him, I was like, man, man, you suckered us in. You sent an email, bring me the weary and heavy laden. 
And then like the first five points were like, I'm going to go take a nap. And then that sixth point was just like, get back to work. And so uh, we, we had a good laugh about it. But it's really interesting because the point, which we'll talk about it here in a few minutes, but the point was that Sabbath rest is not idleness. And that was a really important point. And it helps us to understand why this idleness problem was so significant in the Thessalonian church. So look at 3, 6 through 12. We'll, we'll start at the end and go backwards. At 3, 6 through 12, it says this. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how, we ought, how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you. Nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So, Dever notes that Paul seems to have realized that some combination of circumstances and false ideas was leading to a very acute problem of idleness in the Thessalonian church. Now, something to note, idleness is not unique to the Thessalonian church. Remember, he's written to Paul about this. There are other churches. Ephesians had a problem with this, where there were some of the women that were accused of going from house to house being idle and being busybodies. What's a busybody? What does that mean? Yeah, that's a great way to say it. You're busy, but with everybody else's business. It's a busybody, going around, not really getting anything done, not accomplishing things, lacking intentionality, and ultimately, idle. Aside from not being a burden, why else did, according to the verses we just read, aside from not wanting to be a burden to them, why else did Paul pay his own way? As an example. This is significant. He paid for his own food, small thing. This is a reminder that he's planting a church, he's encouraging these people, he's setting an example. He does a small thing like paying for his own food. And that small thing serves uh, a significant role. It, it, serves, it sets an example and he cares for them all in the same moment. And it's a reminder to us that even small actions that can seem insignificant have tremendous meaning when they're rightly considered. So this little, this little act of pray, paying for his own food, small act, but when rightly considered, had a very tremendous meaning and significant impact on the Thessalonian church. So here's the problem is idleness. Very, very simple. They were being idle. They were not working as they should as people who were professing Christians, people who had been rescued by Christ to live a life and set an example for others. The cause of the problem in Thessalonica was a terrible misunderstanding. Some of us get into idleness because it's just sort of a product of laziness and we want to rest. And even to the point where we needed the clarification on Sunday that Sabbath rest is not the same thing as idleness. 
But their, the reason for their idleness was a little bit more complex. They can't just be blamed for being lazy, but it was actually a misunderstanding because of false teaching. In 2, 1 through 3, it says, First of all, then, I er- oh, that's First Timothy. Hold on. 2, 1 through 3. There's only one page, so it's easy to lose it. Um, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat at the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? The reason for their idleness is a mistake that they've made by forgetting the gospel truth that Paul shared with them originally because other people were bringing in um, falsehood and lies. They seemed to think that the kingdom of God had come in its fullness and that they were already experiencing it. And so they thought, well, I'm just going to quit my job. Does, I mean, it really is not hard. To, I mean, if someone told you, the kingdom of God has already come, Jesus already came back, they'd be like, well, okay, well, I'm going to quit my job. I mean, it's kind of a, if that's for real, and this is the kingdom of God, and it's already here, and this is what eternity is going to be, I'm going to quit my job. I'm going to quit working because I know that if he comes back, eternity's different, and you have this different perspective. It'd almost be like saying, um, like, I was trying to think of an example of, to illustrate this, and to be like Lindsay saying, um, uh, you guys can take a break and eat a bunch of pizza when dad gets home. And then she goes in there, and they're eating a bunch of pizza, but I'm not home. And asking them, why are you eating pizza? And, well, we thought dad was home. Why did you think dad was home? Well, the neighbor told us that dad was home, or someone else told us that dad was home. So it's sort of, that, that's kind of an illustration to help you understand what happened to them. It's like, why are you quitting your jobs and being idle? Well, Jesus came back. Why do you think Jesus came back? Well, because someone told us. Not because I saw him. Not because we ran it through the filter of what we've already been taught. It'd be like my kids. Like, not because we actually saw his car or heard his voice or heard the door open, but just by someone else's false teaching. And so they didn't run it through the filter of the reality of the gospel that Paul had shared with them. And the result was, well, we might as well quit our jobs. And so they were idle. That was the cause They seemed to think the kingdom of God had come in its fullness and they were already experiencing it. The problem was that it's a hope problem because it leaves heaven looking suspiciously like this life. So they didn't understand enough about eternal reality to understand that, okay, when it's here, it's going to look different. There's things that we will have in a more full way in Christ that we don't yet have, but they, they, they had heard enough of the gospel to just think, well... I guess this is it, but they hadn't gotten, an, uh, they hadn't remembered all that they had in fact heard. So the problem, idleness, the cause, false teachers that brought confusion, making them think that Jesus had already come back. Well, the solution that Paul proposes is twofold, and it's really quite simple. Know the truth and live it out. 
That's the message that he brings as a solution in this little short second letter. Know the truth. I told you the truth. He says, remember what I preached to you. Remember what I taught you. I told you that there's, there's going to be the, the man of lawlessness. There's going to be those who oppose. And, and then Jesus will come back. He's going he's to overcome the man of lawlessness. Know the truth and live it out. To clear up the situation, really, Paul spends these first two chapters, and then chapter three is pretty short. He spends the first two chapters reminding them of the truth that was taught to them originally. I have a, uh, there was a time, I've got a funny recording on my phone of when I um, once communicated, like a lot of our teaching is a stir you up by way of reminder thing, like it's not new. And um, some, someone in the sound booth at some point somewhere, I don't know who it was, took this recording of me saying, this is a stir you up, it's nothing new. And they slowed it down so that I sound like a blubbering drunk. And it's quite humorous. But I listened to it today and, uh, for this and thought I'd play it tonight. But then I thought better of it because it sounded like I had way too many, way too many drinks before I taught. Um, but it's, it's a lot of what we teach is they stir you up by way of reminder. And that's what Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians is. It's, guys, hey, I taught you better. I, you, you should know better because of what I already taught you. So let me remind you of the truth. Two chapters of reminding them what he taught them originally. The main truth he wants them to know is that Jesus has not come back yet. That's the main point of this little short letter. Two, three through four. Again, I just read it. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes God, opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. And then in 9 through 10, it says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. <clears throat> There's more that they don't understand. It's not just that they don't understand that Jesus hasn't come back. Um, there's more that they don't understand. Paul does not warn them about the man of lawlessness in order to worry them. He's not talking about this man of lawlessness to freak him out and worry him um, because God will destroy the man of lawlessness. Look at 2.12. It says... Um, in 11 it says, Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, beloved brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as a first fruits to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. In short, Paul wants them to know that they won't need to go to a seminar or special training to figure out when Jesus comes back. They're, they're not going to need a special insight or training or some seminar to know when Jesus comes back, mainly because it will be obvious. He says, you'll know when it happens. Like he's saying, guys, it hasn't happened yet, and you'll know when it happens, and it's not gonna, it's gonna be super obvious because there's gonna be delusion, there's gonna be people buying into falsehood, there's gonna be the lawless one, and then Christ will come back and conquer him. Essentially, in short, if, if Jesus had returned, they would not still be experiencing persecution. So as long as you're experiencing persecution for your faith, Jesus has not come back yet. That's what Paul's trying to make clear to them, and that will keep them from being idle. 
So they, they need to know the truth. They need to obey the truth. And in 3.6, as we read earlier, or no, in 3.6, it says, He must not be... Good grief, I keep going to 1 Timothy. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who's walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. And then in 12... Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their own work quietly and to earn their own living. To obey is to get back to work. And he's not even talking about just ministry. He's saying Christians should work. There's an example that is set and a pattern that is followed when Christians work. And so to obey is to get back to work. Stop being idle. Consider how serious of an offense idleness is, as he says, have nothing to do with those who are idle. And consider the connections to Sunday. You know, one of the reasons, like we we joked around in staff meeting that we kind of wish the Sabbath rest was idleness. Like, wouldn't that be nice if Sabbath rest meant you could like not, just, just don't do stuff. What we have here is the Sabbath rest, not only is it not idleness in Christ, But what we need to remember is it was never idleness. The pattern of life that was set for us by God is a pattern of life as work with seasons of rest, particularly six days of work and one day of rest. But even originally in Genesis, that one day of rest was not about idleness. It was about intentionally not doing certain things so as to be closer to God. Idleness from the beginning Idleness in Proverbs and wisdom literature has always been something that has been admonished. It's always been something that has been warned against. It's always been something that's frowned upon. So if you, if you walked away Sunday thinking, I wish we were Old Testament Jews so we could just be idle seventh of the time, that's not what it, they were doing. It was never about idleness. It was about intentionally not doing certain things so that you could do other things that were about being close to God and appreciating God and thanking God and loving God because he cares about his relationship with you. So it's a pretty serious offense for him to say to a New Testament church, they have everything. He's, this is the guy who has written saying, you have perfect unity as a gift and you need not try to create it. You need to preserve it. That was Ephesians. Look at all that God has done. Y'all preserve that unity that you have. Apparently one of the ways we do that is warn and admonish those who are idle, and if they don't listen, don't hang around them. That's like, like I just, just take that in. Idleness is that big of a deal. It gets in the way that much. It misrepresents God that much that he says, don't have anything to do with them. So how do you obey the truth, know the truth, and obey the truth? It's real simple. Get back to work. In 2.15, he says, do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So it's not an enemy, but he has to be warned as a brother. And in that warning, part of what makes the warning, the warning more firm is to have nothing to do with the one who is idle. And then it says in 16 and 17, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Oh, no, 2.15. Um, so then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work. It is amazing how hard it is to teach off of one page. Like I'm really having a hard time tonight. I'm sorry about that.
Um, I just need one. I've got all these things. I just need one on that page. Um, Beyond idleness, Paul exhorts them to stand firm and hold on to the teachings. So part of idleness is that they're clearly not standing firm and holding on to the teachings. So one of the reasons that you put idleness away is to stand firm and hold on to the teachings. And then he prays that God would help them to do just that. He trusts God to help them to do this thing that they're having trouble doing. The Thessalonians were idle because they thought that the end had come. And Paul tells them that Christ had not yet returned. And what they must do now is simple, get back to work. So the question of the night is, seriously, how did the Thessalonians fall into that problem? Like, really, really, how, how could you make the mistake that Jesus had come back? To answer this question is kind of complex because we have to consider the role of God in this letter and all of this relational language. Because they were looking, they, they, they had a sense of their closeness to God that was so profound that they mistakenly thought Jesus had come back because of all the relational language that Paul has used with them in sharing the gospel. Our relationship with God in the present is what we're going to look at first. One of the main things that we have in Christ is access to God. Far beyond legal reconciliation with our Creator is an actively involved relationship with our Heavenly Father. If we think just in terms of, well, Jesus came so that God doesn't hate me in wrath anymore, and that's it, we we fall really short of it. Our God is a relational God. Over and over again in these pastoral epistles, we've seen that the forward movement of truth is intensely relational. The forward movement of the kingdom of God is intensely relational. We are meant to be um, close in our relationships with one another, and that helps to aid the truth in moving forward. But above that is people who are very close to God in the present. Consider how how Paul uses the language of relationship. In 3.16, which I accidentally read earlier, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. In 3.3 he says, But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. The blessing of his presence strengthens. The blessing of God's presence protects. What does this relationship kind of sound like? Protection, strength, encouragement, complete access. What does that sound like? It sounds a lot like marriage. As you're reading that, I think you're supposed to say, oh, that sounds kind of like marriage. The blessing of his presence strengthens and protects, and frankly, it sounds a bit like marriage, but there's more. Over in 1.8, he says this. 1.8 says, In Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey our Lord Jesus Christ, obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there is strength given in the presence of God, there is punishment given in this relationship that we currently presently have with God. And there's a reality that God will punish those who don't know them. And that's an encouragement to those who do know him. God wants us to know he will punish those who wrong us and wrong him. So there's strength, there's encouragement, there's protection, and there's coming punishment for those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So we have this reality of this relationship of God in the present, but we also have to consider Paul's language of prayer. And this is a really practical and helpful little, set, little section. Look at just 1, 3 through 4. The, we kind of started at the end of the letter, now we're kind of back towards the beginning. He says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and the afflictions that you are enduring. In this language of prayer, first, Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' faith, hope, and love. I mean, we're moving so quickly through the books, y'all might be getting a little bit bored on like, yes, we've heard this before. Paul always does this. Paul always prays for the other people. He always thanks God for their faith, for their hope, and for their love. And you're exactly right. He does always do it, and it sets an example for us. This language of prayer is important. He thanks God for their faith, hope, and love. And now look at 2.13. 2.13 says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God gave you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, he has called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is very specific about how God has loved Christians. As he prays for them, he prays, and in this language of prayer, he's very specific about how God has shown love to his children. It's almost like a teaching moment within him telling them how he prays for them. The second thing here is that Paul asks God to just bless the lives of the Thessalonians. Again, it's the same we saw in Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and 1 Thessalonians. He prays that God would bless the lives of the Thessalonians. In doing so, he sets an example for us in, a, in something that's unique. As we look at these next four details, Paul sets an example for us in praying for people we don't know well. Something that uh, here at Crosspoint, we're moving into sort of a new season um, on Sunday mornings, certainly not on Wednesday nights, but on Sunday mornings, we have space issues. We, have, we don't have seats for um, people who need seats, we, but more than that, we don't have parking for people who need parking, and our classroom spaces are operating currently at about 110%. So there's kids shoved into every classroom. We're having to start to stack them. It's embarrassing, but um, I'm kidding. We don't stack your children. That was a joke. Um, but we're trying to lean forward in a number of ways, and we're going to be having a membership meeting on February 26th where we're um, communicating sort of a vision and uh, potential um, some possibilities for what God might have in store for Crosspoint and some decisions that we're making to lean forward in. And one of the areas that we're wanting to encourage people is, is in prayer. As a body, we're wanting to bring some things to God in prayer as a body as we decide about... um, what to do with our facility, what to do with assets, what to do with money in the bank, um, what to do with trying to get in touch with the trust that owns the property, the 24 acres behind us, what to do with our neighbors to the east who own 10 acres when we're on this long, skinny 5.3-acre piece of land that's kind of hard to develop. We want to develop it because right now we're at a point where we are fairly comfortable and we all love each other a lot, but we need to be fairly concerned about the fact that we don't have a lot of space on Sunday mornings for the people who are moving into this community as this community is growing up around us. So one of the things that we're needing to do is grow in prayer and in corporate prayer, prayer where we, we pray as a body about like particular things. And one of them is going to be you know, some of the things that I just shared. 
but the other is for other people. Sometimes it's hard. Have you ever tried to pray for someone you don't know? It, it, feels, it can feel rigid, maybe a little generic, maybe a little heartless. Um, sometimes I struggle with it on Sunday mornings. We pray for other pastors, and sometimes I feel like an idiot, to be honest, because I'm praying for these pastors, and I'm like, I don't know these guys, and it feels like disingenuous to pray for them when I have an, I feel like I should take them to lunch the week before if I'm going to pray for them on Sunday because it just feels kind of silly. And I guess I pray for this guy. I don't actually know him. I couldn't pick him out of a lineup. I pray for his wife, and I just got their name off of Facebook because you can Facebook stalk anybody and get their information. And I pray for these general things, and it feels disingenuous. But God has a design that he shows us through Paul and how to pray for people we don't know well. And this is a really just four little points. The first one is this. Pray for grace and peace. In 1-2, he says to Timothy... Er, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 3.16, he says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times in every way. The Lord be with you all. And then in 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. As we pray for those that we may not know well, it's fitting to pray for grace and for peace. My hope is that maybe... At some point, we might give you guys just a, a list you can keep in your Bible of the church roster. I was listening to something by Mark Dever this week, and he said, um, in light of this reality that comes out of Second Thessalonians, they actually printed off um, church rosters to give to everybody to keep in their Bible, and they encouraged them to pray through one page a day and pray these things for, for your fellow church members. And I think as we're leaning forward, that's something that can help us to grow very personally and also everybody's getting lifted up regularly to our Lord. And so pray for grace and peace. Number two, pray that God will guide them into love and perseverance. 3.5 says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. That's a prayer that he's praying. And for people we don't know, praying that God will guide them into love and perseverance is fitting. The third thing is to just pray for God's strength. Look at 2.16. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Pray for God's strength. And then the fourth one is to pray for the success of the saints. This is kind of in keeping with what we do as we pray for other churches. We do pray for the pastors, but we pray also for their churches and praying that God would give them success. Let them, run, let them have parking issues and seat issues and classroom issues like we're facing. That's a, those are really good problems for churches to face. And so pray for the success of the saints. In 111, it says this. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pray for grace and peace. Pray for God's, that God will guide them into love and perseverance. Pray for God's strength and pray for the success of the saints. I want to challenge every one of you to pray these things for people you don't know well. 
Maybe it's a visitor that's been visiting. Um, we've had a number of visitors every week right now. You're, you're seeing new faces. Um, you can, um, through our greeting ministry, you, you'll know who those names are. Maybe you've met them. Maybe it's uh, the Robinsons. Maybe it's Luke and Hannah and little Penelope on the way. Maybe it's the, they were sitting right back here, um, Earhart is their last name. Yeah, Nate and Lauren. But write those names down. Maybe you don't know them. Pray for people that you don't know in this manner. So Paul thanks God for the Thessalonians' faith, hope, and love. And second, Paul asks God to bless the lives of the Thessalonians. And the third thing is Paul asks the Thessalonians to pray for him. And three, one through two, he says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as it happened among you, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Dever has a note here. He says, so we see that Christianity is not mere moralism. Like people who just think about Christianity as moralism, just do this, don't do this. Christianity is not about tapping into some impersonal force or a universal Christ principle. It's about having a relationship with a personal God who made us in his image. All this relationship language and prayer language demonstrates that Christians are already in a wonderful relationship with God, which helps us to understand how the Thessalonians could have been deceived. They already knew about how close they were to God. They already knew about how um, through prayer that there was a reality of God's presence for strength, presence for perseverance, and they just thought, well, maybe Jesus came back because some people said so. And, and it's, as we understand this relational language and this prayer language, it kind of helps us to understand how they fell into thinking Jesus had already returned. Because honestly, it just sounds kind of stupid like for us in our setting to be like, they thought Jesus returned, they're still being persecuted. But there was a closeness that they had about God in a way that Paul had shared the gospel that so much had changed. I mean, Thessalonica was planted by Alexander the Great. The church in Thessalonica was planted by Paul. Thessalonica was a, was a flagship of all that is worldly, all that is fleshly, all that is not of God, and the church is the exact opposite of all that is holy, an example of all that would be um, in, a, in a genuine relationship with God. And so um, that helps us to understand how they were deceived. As we consider, our, he helped them to consider the relationship with God in the present, and that helps us to understand how they could have thought in the present that maybe Jesus had returned. But then we consider our relationship with God in the future. He talks about the future in this letter because there are those who have um, lied to them. And when we talk about the future, we have to be very careful because sometimes we make statements about things we don't know. I mean, the scripture, the, the one that comes to mind is, you know, don't say that you'll go into such and such a place and stay for so long, but rather if the Lord wills it, we'll do this because we don't know what a day holds. Christians are told to make the most of our time and to be good stewards of opportunities and to strike while the iron's hot because we know that the days are evil. And we know that Christ, when he returns, it will be like a thief in the night. It'll be in a flash. And so um, what we can know about what lies ahead is only what God tells us. Or to state it in a different way, we can know nothing about what lies ahead except for what God tells us. In 2.11 it says this. As we consider the future, in 2.11 it says... Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned 
who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Christ will defeat the lawless one. That's one thing we can know. As far as our relationship with God in the future goes, he needs the Thessalonian church to understand when he does come back, Christ will defeat the lawless one. And then in one six it says, Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not, who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So Christ will defeat the lawless one and Christ will sit in the seat of judgment. So these are things that we can know. We, we, we can't know a ton about the future, but we know that as far as our relationship with God goes, when he comes back, Christ will defeat this lawless one who has come before him and Christ will sit in the seat of judgment, afflicting those and, and, and bringing vengeance on those who have turned from him. These are realities for Christians. And then in 2.12 it says, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure and unrighteousness. We are to understand who he will punish. Those not believing in truth but delighting in wickedness. That's who God will punish. We should be delighting in God. And there are those who do not delight in God, but they rather delight in wickedness. And those who are, that is who God will punish. Payback for such living will be ruin that never ends. That's what's described there, ruin that never ends. So for those who are in Christ, we can celebrate that we don't get ruin that never ends. Look at 2.1. 2.1 says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or spoken word or a letter seeming to come from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. And in one five, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. And in seven it says, and to grant you relief for you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed. Christ will save his own people when he comes back. So he will defeat the lawless one. He will sit in the seat of judgment. He will repay those who have gloried in unrighteousness with eternal torment and eternal suffering, a ruin that never ends, and then Christ will save his own people. He will gather us to himself, counting us as worthy of his kingdom, giving relief to those who are troubled. Here's what I hope it's you tonight. We talk about this all the time. Like there's really nothing that's new and mind-blowing in 2 Thessalonians that's different from Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians. As I sit here and talk about how Christ will save his own people, he will gather us to himself, he will count us worthy of his kingdom because the worthiness of Christ was counted as ours, and he will give relief to those who are troubled. When he comes back, there will be those who are troubled because they have been persecuted and wronged. And he will bring genuine, wholehearted, full relief to them. They will have a burden lifted and taken off. We talk about this stuff so often that sometimes it can not affect us. That's something that I've struggled with. As I was putting this together, I'm like writing it out and realizing I'm almost writing this as information that's just a knowledge base that I'm going to teach from tonight. 
But the remarkable thing is he counts us worthy of his kingdom. He's going to rescue us. He's going to gather us to him. And I don't know how to, without just saying it emphatically and yelling, how to make that more exciting than it actually just is as it sits. I hope that we don't find that as common. I hope that as we have these studies where we're just one book at a time and we're saying, oh, there's a lot of repeated themes here. Rather than let the repetition lull you into a bore, let the repetition heighten your encouragement and heighten your excitement and heighten your anticipation of the, when the day of the Lord will come. Because it is a certain reality. These are the kind of things that like, we can't talk to our kids as if, yeah, he's going to save you. He's going to bring you to himself. He's going to get it. Like it's just second, you know, it's just real common. It seems common to us because we talk about it every week, at least twice a week, Maybe more if you go to life group, maybe more if you have devotions in your home. This little short book, this was amazing to the Thessalonians. They were just bathing in it. And they were bathing in it to such a degree that they even stepped off into the ditch and had to be brought back because they actually thought maybe Jesus had come back. They were anticipating it that much. They were looking forward to it that much. What we learned from the Thessalonians, we should live working we should live wisely, and we should live waiting. There's some wonderful pastoral alliteration for you here at the end. Live working, live wisely, and live waiting. We should not just assume that tomorrow is going to be the same as today was. We should not go to bed and wake up with a set of expectations that are low and boring. We should be anticipating the return of Jesus. I mean, it could happen in our lifetime. When you look at the condition of things going on in the world, now, we can't say it's already happened because the whole lawless one, there's lots of theories about, you know, there's already there, there's a lawless one, but we'll know for certain when it happens, but the reality is when we look around, it could happen, and we should anticipate that it could happen within our lifetime. I remember it was very odd. I remember as a a little kid that I don't have, I don't claim to have any prophetic gifts, but I just remember as a little kid when I first heard that Jesus is going to come back. I remember sitting in Sunday school with Ms. Woods and being like, that's going to be during my lifetime. I think I'm going to see that. I just remember thinking it as a kid. Now, part of it was because of this anticipation of like, oh my gosh, Jesus is coming back. And I'm a kid and I just heard this and I'm trying to, I'm trying to make sense of that. And what's going on? But why not? Why not have such a sense of anticipation? Why not consider that indeed, in the same way that they had thought it already happened, it could happen in our lifetime? There are no guarantees that it's 1,000 years off or 10,000 years off. It could happen quickly. And some people think it will. But whether we know the time is not important. But what we need to know is the certainty of it. And we need to know the nature of it. When he returns, he will gather us, he will comfort us, he will redeem us, and he will count us worthy. And we should be anticipating that far more than we're anticipating all the other little things that we anticipate in a day or that we anticipate in a week. I've got so many plates spinning in my life right now. I'm anticipating when I finalize a decision on this and that and this and that and houses and schooling and church stuff and what do we do as a church here and what do we do as a church here and soccer practice and soccer. There's all these things that I anticipate over a given week. We should anticipate this above all, above all of those things, like clearly above all those things, and it should affect the way we live. Living, working, don't be idle, Living wisely, make the best use of your time, and living waiting. 
Dever has a quote that I want to close with. He says, unbelief can creep in and gain the upper hand so easily. This brand of secular, secularism that's kind of described in Second Thessalonians has grown in our society, and it has grown in our churches. And he says that this brand of secularism, of not believing these realities, can be seen in this way. And I thought it was a profound way to say it, and I want to just close with it. He said, as churches do more and more to help us cope with this life, and less and less to prepare us for the next, we can know that a lie has creeped in. I just want you to hear that. He says, as churches more and more just help us to cope with this life, rather than help to prepare us for the next, we can know that an ugly, cheap brand of secularism has creeped in to the church. So remember that as we lean forward in our community, as we want to reach new people, as we want to share the true message of the gospel the same way he did in Thessalonica, as we want to grow here, while leaving growth completely up to God, but considering how do we water, how do we plant, while we plant other churches like we've already done twice in 14 years, as our churches do more and more to help us cope with this life and less and less to prepare us for the next, we have believed in a cheap brand of secularism. So we should be thankful when truth is spoken and eternity is properly revered from the pulpit. Let's pray. Lord, I confess that um, in light of what we've considered tonight, I've spent a lot of time today anticipating small things so much more than this. Small things. Lord, I'm humbled and thankful for the way that your word brings perspective to my life. Even as I'm teaching it, because it wasn't enough while I was putting the notes together. Lord, I'm thankful for the perspective that we gain. I'm thankful for being able to actually grow in our ability of understanding what is to come and what we have now. Lord, help us as individuals and as a church to never be idle. Lord, I pray that we follow the pattern that you set for us of a life of work with seasons of rest, of six days of work and one day of just very purposeful inactivity, but let us never refer to it as idleness. For idleness is to be admonished, just as we learned last week. Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. Lord, I pray for holy activity by every person here tonight as we work hard and rest in the finished work of Christ. Help us to do our jobs well. Help us to raise the bar in our workplaces as Christians. And help us to see the eternal realities that go with even menial tasks on a Tuesday afternoon. Lord, we love you. We humble ourselves before you. We praise you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.